So as I said a few minutes ago, we're in here the Sunday of Christ the King, the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the Sunday before Advent. And all of our readings today in some way deal with the question or the issue of how it is that Jesus Christ, the crucified one, is the King and what it means for us here in the church to proclaim this, to live this, to seek to embody it. I wonder what you think of the idea of kingdom, of rule, of dominion, of reign. I think in the 21st century it is not an easy concept to feel simply comfortable with. It is a biblical idea and in fact it goes way back. At the very beginning of the creation, the Lord God forms the various kinds of things in the world, fish, birds, animals, and he says to them things like this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. But when he makes man and woman in his image to be like him in a unique way in the world, he says this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Bring it into conformity with what you believe and can sense as my children would be good. Take the creativity, the desires for goodness within you, that impress of who I am within you, and make something good of what I have made. Bring it into order. And ever since then, it has been part of the human project to try to make life better. It's at the basis of every political project, every desire to push back oppression, to make the world more just, is an attempt to exercise some of the powers that God has given human creatures to bring good into the world. Every household in which there are, there's a schedule, there are structures. Every life in which you think, this year I need to do this. Every time you maybe sit at a desk and think, I have got to deal with this clutter or I'm not going to be able to figure anything out. You're bringing order, you're seeking to bring order. Every household, every body needs order and in fact, a good rule and dominion. In the season of ordinary time, the season after Easter this year, we have been walking through the Gospel of Luke. Not every verse, but sequentially through the Gospel, walking through the life of Jesus. And it's here at the end of the life of Jesus that the church asks us to say, what is it that it means that he is king? In our Gospel reading, he is there on the cross. As if to say, for us, now and here, to embrace Jesus' kingdom is to see him exalted here. But this kingdom has a long backstory. Already vindicated, I think it's present here in the creation of man and woman in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. And in that fall into sin, God speaks a word of promise to Eve and to Adam, saying that I'm going to put enmity between you and the snake between your offspring and this snake, and your offspring will crush his head. There will be a return of something, of the order that God has desired. A few chapters later in Genesis, God calls Abraham and Sarah to go to a new place to give them a family that he says in an exorbitant promise. It's going to cover the entire world, like the stars of heaven, the sands of the sea. And if you know the story, Abraham and Sarah live a long life wandering and do not see 
this come to fulfillment. As Jesus maybe says in the Gospel of John, Abraham saw my day and was glad, but he did not see the promises in his own day. This promise is repeated throughout Israel's story. God does, in fact, take a people out of bondage and bring them and establish them in the land. And he even sets over them a king, David. He says, I found my servant David. There's a, a moment when this idea of kingship looks like it might work in human life. And it only takes a few generations before the thing falls apart and crumbles. And yet God makes promises to David. I will not let there be an end to your rule. We hear something of this in the prophecy from Jeremiah that was read a few minutes ago. In the 6th century B.C., the Davidic kingdom is about to end. The people that God has called to Himself, that He has given a covenant to, that He has revealed Himself to, and revealed to them the way of life that they are to live, have broken this. They have not cared for the widow, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. And they've worshipped other gods. And judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is about to lay siege to the kingdom of Judah and take them away. And you heard in the prophecy, in, in the prophet, this woes against the shepherds, those who lead the people, and those who lead the people astray who do not care for them or tend to them. God is going to bring this thing that He built, this kingdom, this people that He brought into the land, He is going to take it apart. And this hope for the kingdom is going to go, as it were, underground. But there's a promise in verse 3, I will bring them back, he says, to their fold, these sheep, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. You hear the echo of Eden. God's not given up on this plan to make the world good, but it is going to be a long process. And somehow it's going to involve a righteous branch for David. Some ruler, it seems, who will reign as king, this is verses 5 and 6, and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in such a way that he will be called the Lord our righteousness. It's as if to say that God called a people and said, you must be holy as I am holy, righteous as I am righteous, and you have not done this. So there will come a ruler who will be righteous in such a way that we will say, here is our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, as those who have seen how all this comes to its conclusion and fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ, I can't help but think about Romans 3.21, where Paul says, after declaring that the whole world is in bondage under sin, he says this, but now, apart from the law, apart from the way that God might have, might have made it possible for humans to be right before him, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness in the faithfulness of Jesus. There is early on a messianic sense, a messianic interpretation in Jewish understanding to this phrase, the righteous branch for David. You can see a strong parallel in Isaiah 11, which I'm not going to read for you. But in the Greek translation, this is a little bit nerdy, but just go with me for a second. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, mostly. Aramaic, some parts of it, but it's in Hebrew. But early on, translated into Greek. And in the Greek translation of this phrase, the righteous branch for David, do you know what it says? Does anybody know? Actually, I want to know. If anybody knows. 
It's, this is minutia. But listen, it doesn't translate a branch. It's dawn, anatole, arising. Which makes me think about Zachariah's song, which is going to become important for us in Advent. The dawn from on high, it's the same word, will break upon us to shine on those that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This branch for David is some sort of figure who comes from on high to reveal what God's kingdom is like. But these are all words. Israel goes into exile. The kingdom of God goes underground. And this means confusion. Our psalm, I think, and many of the psalms, but the psalm for today, demonstrates this in its juxtaposition of contrasting and, in some ways, non-compatible imagery. There is cosmic disruption, and there is a promise of security and peace. Listen to it. This is from the psalm. The earth gives way. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam. The mountains tremble. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. The earth melts. And God does not stop it. He even seems to be behind it. He has brought desolations on the earth. And in the midst of this, there's this breaking in of an image of security. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, this kingdom of God. God is in the midst of her. God will help her when morning dawns. I think this calls for wisdom and pause. How do you put together these contrasting elements? How can we deal with the cognitive dissonance of a world that is broken and continues to break itself in the face of hope that God is saying, I am not done with the world and I'm going to bring it to some good end? The war in Ukraine and Russia continues. 100,000 dead on each side and growing. We're in, in this time in the life of our country in what feels like a perpetual election season in which the news only offers dismal perspectives regarding, it doesn't matter which perspective you're coming from. Or the climate suffers devastation. The earth melts. There are three commands in the psalm. Listen to them. Three imperatives. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Be still and know. I think it's like the biblical writers understand that this dissonance between the two things that they are saying requires us to stop and consider. It is not an easy thing to take in. What do we get if we try to consider the works of the Lord in the work of Jesus Christ? What happens if we try on for ourselves the early Christian conviction that everything, in fact, holds together in Him? I think the first thing we see is that this involves us in the proclamation of what looks like a great foolishness in the world. The idea that our longing for a life that makes some kind of sense would be answered 
in a first century Jew who was killed by the Roman state and proclaimed by his followers to be risen from the dead is an utterly bonkers kind of claim. That's why we're here, though. The idea that the kingdom of God, that the king with a capital K, was revealed most clearly from the cross, it is strange, isn't it? Isaiah's poetry, we had no form or majesty that we should regard him. It is apt. And yet this is what we confess and believe. We believe that this is the man who lived in such a way through the divine life that was in him that God looked at him in his life and said, righteous, beautiful, and raised him from the dead. My kids and I, a few weeks ago, watched what I think is the best Indiana Jones movie. Um, the Indiana Jones movies ought to have ended back in the 80s when they were good. Um, this is the position of Bread of Life Church on this. Um, the, the most recent movies have jumped the shark in various ways. Um, I'll, I'll leave you to think about that. Um, but the, what I think is the best movie is the, um, come on, David. The Quest for the Holy Grail. That's the one, yeah. And listen, if you haven't seen it, I'm gonna, the, the statute of limitations has run out, so there might be a spoiler here. Um, the final, or the most climactic scene at least, is the one where Indiana Jones, who's been seeking the Holy Grail, the cup of Jesus, um, of the old Arthurian uh, legends and hopes, uh, he finds the room where it is, but it's surrounded by a bunch of other cups. And there's somebody else who, I'm gonna spoil the whole story, but there's somebody else who has to choose a cup first to try to drink from. And if he chooses the wrong one, it's going to go really bad for him. And the man chooses this beautiful golden chalice, studded with gems all around, and he drinks from it, and he has this terrible death. And Indiana Jones chooses wisely, because he thinks, he considers, and he says, this would be the cup of a carpenter, not the cup of a great king. And he picks a shabby but in its own way, sort of beautiful cup, and it's the right one. It is not the glory of the world that attends our Lord. It is the glory of a different world. And this is the one that Paul says in Colossians is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all things hold together, in whom all things find their coherence. I wonder, do you long for a coherent life? Do you hope to find a coherent identity, one that makes sense of your experience in the world, of your desires? Do you want to find a way to live in the midst of the noise and confusion? I don't know about you, but I live in a world that is surrounded by noise, disruption, confusion, and incoherence to such a way that we do just about everything we can to drown it out with activity, with, if you're a thoughtful person or intellectual person, with new ideas, with caffeine, with alcohol, with sex, with nourishing our grievances against one another. The list goes on. Could you believe that it's possible 
that this world in which there is all this noise finds some coherence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we ought to be entirely suspicious of this kind of claim, except that it comes from a man who had nothing left to lose. It doesn't come from somebody well-dressed with 10,000 Instagram followers who's trying to sell you something. It comes about a man who is naked on a cross. In the scene in the Gospel of Luke, in the space of nine verses, there are six references to Jesus' kingship, to him being the king. He's once called the chosen. He's twice called king of the Jews. He's twice called the Christ, the anointed one, which is a biblical name for the ruler, the one that God's chosen to lead. And all of these are meant to be ironic. They are meant to mock. Crucifixion was the way that the Romans did this. They said, oh, you want to be an upstart ruler, do you? You think you might be a king? Let us lift you up so that everyone can see what kind of a king you are. That's what happened when Jesus was lifted up. That's why the sign on the top of him, on the top of the cross, says, the king of the Jews. It was not a pious statement. It was meant to be mockery. And that is why they content, the, the rulers and the soldiers come up and they mock him, rubbing salt in the wounds. How does Jesus respond to them? You can look at the gospel if you need to. How does he respond? He doesn't. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't dispute. He doesn't appear anxious to make everybody understand right now that his kingdom is in fact the true one. He seems to have taken it for granted that it had to be this way. That the world with all of its powers, that the Roman Empire with all of its technology and all of its learning would not understand the truth about his father and his kingdom. He is, I think, something of an example of a non-anxious present in the midst of great angst. But he does one thing. He attends to a man who is vulnerable. The person who seems to be having the hardest time right then is the thief on the cross who recognizes that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. We might have gotten what we deserve, he says to the other thief on the cross. We might have gotten what we deserve. This man ought not to be here. But in hope, he looks to Jesus in faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow, in the midst of this terrible scheme, this terrible scene, there is a man who believes that this man, this naked man on the cross, is the king, and he's coming into a kingdom. And he trusts in Jesus. It is hard to breathe when you're hanging on the cross. Speaks to him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Proximity to Jesus. Intimacy. Friends, this is what the kingdom of God is about. Matthew read for us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. In Him, with Him, 
attached to him. He is the head of the body. There's no body that's attached to a head that's not attached through life-giving connections. Some of us were talking in our Anglican 101 class this last week about how Christianity does not offer us a vision of salvation that is nominal, that is simply legal, that is a matter of our ideational connection to God. It is a living connection. Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. To be connected to him means to be organically and really and truly connected to him in the midst of whatever is happening. And finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say, this amounts to a double coherence with him. We share mystically in the new life of the resurrection that happens on the other side of the cross. We have, brothers and sisters, been delivered from the domain of darkness. And I know enough of you well enough that you could testify to this in your own life, as I can in mine. So we share in him, in him and with him in his resurrection. But we also, in this life, share in him and with him in his death, in his dying. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We are always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. Our place is to be misunderstood with him, to be maligned with him, to not offer retaliation, but to offer, but, but to embody the wisdom that knows that the kingdom of this world is hidden, that the kingdom of God is hidden within the rival kingdoms of this world. And we are to join with those, like Jesus did, whom the world casts out, and to speak the consolation of the love of God to those who know that things are not how they ought to be. So, as we go forward in this last week of the Christian year, I invite you to manifest this upside-down kingdom of God, to keep close and open your connection to Jesus, and to be still and know that He is the King, come what may. In the name of Christ, amen.